Hi, this is Sean Fenske, Editor-in-Chief of MPO. I'm here once again for another episode of Mike on MedTech, a part of the MedTech Matters podcast channel. Joining me as always, Mike Drews, President of Vascular Sciences. Mike, how are you today? I'm well, Sean. Thank you. Great. So today we're going to look at a, a couple of guidance documents that the FDA had, had just uh, recently put forward. Uh, I'm going to get through these titles, and hopefully we'll have some time left to, uh, to actually discuss <laughs> that. Uh, the first one is Consideration of Uncertainty in Making Benefit-Risk Determinations in Medical Device Premarket Approvals, De Novo Classifications, and Humanitarian Device Exemptions. The second one factors to consider when making benefit-risk determinations in medical device pre-market approval and de novo classifications. So, Mike, as, uh, as you've uh, indicated to me in the, uh, previously, uh, these kind of, they're separate guidances, but they can be coupled together. They kind of make sense to discuss together. So let's get right to it. Uh, can you give a little bit about what the purpose of these two uh, guidance documents are? Absolutely, Sean, and once again, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you and your audience about this. Uh, you're exactly right. Both of these guidance documents, the titles are quite a mouthful, and we will, uh, on the website, provide the titles and the links for the convenience of the audience. But first and foremost, I want our audience to understand that these really should not be considered separate and distinct guidances. I don't know, to be honest, why FDA decided to separate them out. I think uh, if you're going to read one, you should read both of them. They should be considered um, uh, uh, co collectively. Most important, what these guidances they, they do is they try to, to, to make uh, it more transparent, more consistent, more objective, this whole process of understanding risk and uncertainty or risk-benefit or now what some people are referring to as benefit-risk. Obviously, this is nothing new, Sean. These are... These are things that have gone, you know, and it's important to go into every medical device submission since the beginning of time. But these are two guidances that take us one step further to try to um, understand, um, you know, that, that process, especially from FDA's perspective. And just briefly separating the two out. So the first one that you mentioned, the consideration of uncertainty in making benefit-risk determinations in medical device approvals, de novos, HDEs, and so on. Right. This guidance talks about when we can accept a greater risk in a product prior to the product actually getting onto the, onto the market, in other words, uh, in the pre-market submission. And this is especially for PMA devices and HDE devices that are both class 3 or de novo devices that are class 2 or less. So this would not necessarily be as applicable to 510K devices. And most important, most interesting that I find about this particular guidance, Sean, is what is not in the title. When you look through the guidance, there's a pretty good chunk of the guidance devoted to the breakthrough designation program, the BDP. And specifically under the context of the BDP, which is something that you and I have talked about in the past, Sean, I got a lot of experience with the BDP program. When can greater risk uh, be be accepted in in BDP uh, applications? And then secondly, the other guidance is factors to consider when making benefit risk determinations. Um, uh, the, the, the second of the two um, that talks a little bit, um, uh, well, let me say it this way, Sean, the two most interesting 
parts of that particular guidance are the two appendices. In one appendix, okay. the guidance specifically talks about the intersection of this particular guidance with ISO 14971. And so that's, you know, the, the, the sort of intersection or the, the be, between the IS, between FDA's view of, of risk or uncertainty and ISOs. And then there's another guidance, sorry, another um, appendix in that guidance that's actually quite new. It's a worksheet for uh, determining that benefit risk asset assessment. It's about nine pages long for those in the audience that are familiar with the refuse to accept or RTA worksheet for the 510K, for PMAs, and, for, for, and so on. This is sort of an RTA-like worksheet, if you will, for, um, for the whole benefit risk determination. Bottom line, Sean, like I said at the beginning, what these two guidances try to do collectively is they try to add some more transparency, consistency, uh, objectivity to the whole risk uncertainty process. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I mean, uh, we'll, we'll look to get into it a little further, so uh, perhaps clarify some of the still gray area. Um, but one thing I did, I did notice uh, that, that you mentioned in, in discussing uh, the titles and the, the, of the guidances and what's in it, what's not in it, and you, you brought up the breakthrough designation. But another thing that's not mentioned in there is the 510K, and it's, it's just curious, why, why do they uh, discuss this, these guidances for PMA, HDE, and de novo, and why is 510K left out? Yeah, great question, Sean. Uh, so simply put, risk or uncertainty or whatever you want to call it, it's important in medical device submissions across the board, no question about it. But the reason why it's not specifically called out for the 510K, and this is perhaps one of the small thing, small number of things that I actually agree with FDA, is risk in a 510K is very, very different than risk of a, um, of a, of a new device like a de novo device or a, or a high risk, a class 3 device like a PMA or an HDE. In other words, <coughs> pardon me, not to get too much into the weeds of the 510K, although obviously the vast majority of our, of our audience works in the 510K world, right. risks for a 510K device because of the nature of substantial equivalence should be relatively well understood prior to the actual submission and marketing of the product. In other words, if we go in and argue that our device is substantially equivalent, i.e. basically the same as another device already on the market and basically the same meaning in terms of labeling and technology, then it stands to reason that most, if not all, of the risks associated with the previous product, the predicate product, are going to be applicable to our product. On the other hand, in the de novo world, because there is nothing that's substantially equivalent, there, you're not nearly as confident in advance as uh, you know, knowing what those risks are. And certainly in the class three world, PMAs and HDEs, because in these kinds of medical devices, Sean, we're often referring to devices that are um, um, life-supporting or life-sustaining kinds of devices. In some cases, if the patient uses the device and it works, they live. If they don't, they die. Right. Because the, the, the risk is so high there, we, we just want to be um, 
extra sure that we understand and we've mitigated those risks as much as we could. So simply put, the answer to the question of why 510Ks are not explicitly called out in, this, in these guidances is because, at least theoretically, of course, there's exceptions to this rule, Sean, as we both know, but it's, you know, theoretically, risks of a 510K device should be much better understood than risks of a de novo or alternatively the higher risk devices like the PMAs and the HDEs. Okay, great. Yeah, that definitely that definitely clarifies why it's why it's absent. Uh, so so let's talk about the the risk aspect for a minute. When is the higher risk acceptable? And can you explain a little bit about how that ties to the word uncertainty? Yeah, again, it's a terrific question, Sean. So there's two places that FDA calls out in these guidances where higher risks are acceptable. And to me, I'm sorry, you know, with all due respect to my many FDA friends, these are statements of the obvious. I mean, anybody should know this. One is uh, in the PMA world. Clearly, it's, it's acceptable to, um, to, to, um, to take higher risk, to accept higher risk in the PMA world because, as we talked about a moment ago, these are class three. Uh, these are you know, oftentimes life-sustaining, life-supporting kinds of devices. So it makes sense to accept a higher risk. And similarly, another statement of the obvious is uh, when you're dealing with um, the humanitarian device exemption or the HDE, which is intended for small patient populations. Still class three, so you're still in that highest risk category of devices. Uh, it's acceptable to, to, to take higher risk. But to me, saying that higher risks are acceptable in PMAs and HDEs Again, I don't mean to be overly flippant, but that's a statement of the obvious. Anybody that doesn't know that already shouldn't be working in this business. <laughs> I take it a step further. You know, I say um, uh, when patients are in eminent demise, in other words, if they're suffering from a disease like, let's say, the example I often like to use, Sean, is pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer is perhaps the worst form of cancer that one could have, not like any form of cancer, Sean, is, a, is good, but pancreatic cancer is perhaps the worst. Why? For right. several reasons. Because it's typically a very short duration from diagnosis to death. It's an extraordinarily painful way to go. And really, there are no other good options for the patient. So if you're bringing a device out to the market for a patient um, with a disease like pancreatic cancer, where they're an eminent demise, they don't have any alternatives or any good alternatives, it stands to reason that we can accept a higher degree of risk than as opposed to, let's take uh, the other end of the spectrum, Sean, uh, uh, a medical device, a laser, for example, for removing tattoos, right, a cosmetic indication. Right. In that particular case, obviously, we're going to set the bar for risk much lower because, you know, unless something weird is going on, most people are not going to die because of having a tattoo. Do you know what I mean? So we have to take risk into account. As you know, Sean, I'm a subject matter expert for FDA in a few different areas, one of them being risk. Risk is not rigid. It should, we, we definitely have to take um, into account what the military, what the DOD calls situational awareness. And that's what I'm trying to, uh, to explain here. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense that, that, like you said, certain devices, depending on what they're being indicated for, what, uh, what therapy they're being indicated for, would, would 
qualify to be under a higher risk threshold or you know kind of kind of acceptable risk um, so what other what other elements uh, in this guidance uh, did you note to be uh, uh, you know, perhaps noteworthy to our audience, and and what would the final takeaway be for for our for our listeners with regard to these guidance documents? So, just a few other uh, sort of miscellaneous points that I thought were uh, worthy of noting in these two guidances, uh, in no particular order. One thing that I saw was new. I haven't seen this in in uh, in other guidances before is FDA's encouraging companies now to consider the patient's perspective on uncertainty, if that's available. Um, you know, again, using the pancreatic cancer versus uh, tattoo removal, right? Most patients are probably going to accept a higher risk, a higher uncertainty, if they have a life or death sort of a condition like pancreatic can uh, cancer, on the other hand, they're probably going to accept lower risk if they're just, you know, having a tattoo removed or something like that. Right. So, uh, so I think it's, you know, this is something that physicians would often do with patients, but I haven't really seen it done very often where the company will take that patient perspective into account if that information is available. Another thing that FDA is encouraging companies to do, and this is something that I do with all of my customers, is to consider the degree of unmet clinical need. In other words, if the patient doesn't have other options or if the other options that they have are not very good. Um, the, in the PMA universe, there's actually a regulatory requirement in the risk section to consider this. It's what um, FDA calls alternative practices and procedures, in my approach to risk, what I call my three-bucket approach, it's what I call the probability of harm of not using my medical device. What if they use somebody else's medical device? What if they have a surgical procedure? What if they take a drug or, or something else? So taking into account the degree of, uh, of, of unmet clinical need, what other options, is, is another important piece of this puzzle. Right. Another thing that these guidances bring up is clinical evidence. How much clinical data do we need to make a risk or uncertainty determination? And further, how much of the clinical evidence can be, needs to be collected pre-market, that is before your submission and, and, and your devices on the market, versus how much of that clinical evidence can be accumulated post-market while you're selling and, and, and marketing that particular medical device. And one of the things that one of these guidances talks a bit about is uh, the, the shift of, you know, that some of the clinical evidence burden, if you will, can be collected after the fact, can be collected after it's on the market, although FDA does stress what they call, and this is a direct quote, John, timely post-market data collection not something that uh, our industry has a particularly good track record of overall. And one of the statements that FDA makes in the guidance, and this is a direct quote, I'm glad that I'm, they're reminding all of my industry friends of this, and that is, quote, FDA has the authority to withdraw the approval of a PMA if conditions of approval, including the collection of post-market data, are not met. Regrettably, Sean, they don't do this perhaps as often as they should. And notice that this is a PMA requirement. It is not a requirement in the 510K or the de novo world 
perhaps it should be, we'll leave that for, uh, for a different discussion. Um, so those are just some of the things that, uh, that, uh, that FDA has, has shared in these guidances. The, the very last point that I'll, that I'll um, uh, mention very, very quickly, uh, two points actually. They remind in that uh, industry that yes, you can mitigate risk via labeling, but as ISO says, and I agree with them when it comes to, to, to this particular statement, labeling should not be your primary risk mitigation measure. In other words, you should do everything that you can on the engineering side, and, you know, design, uh, training, and so on. Mitigating risk via labeling should be a last resort for all right. the obvious reasons. And finally, the last uh, thing to, 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 to point out about these guidances is in the HDE world, which is um, the medical device equivalent of the orphan drug program, Sean, there is no efficacy requirement. Instead, it's probable benefit. So once again, this is why, back to your question about the 510K earlier, this is why the HDE is specifically included here. And quite frankly, Sean, in the class three universe, the HDE is one of my favorite ways to get devices out to the market because I don't have to show that my device is effective. I simply have to show that it has probable benefit, whatever the heck that means. <laughs> so those are some of the important things that I thought were in the guidance. Uh, just out of curiosity, Sean, any of them you think are important? Any things that you would add to that list that I may have overlooked? Not, not necessarily add, but I have a couple of uh, uh, follow-up questions to some of those items that you did bring up. So, Please. So the, the patient perspective item, um, you know, I, I believe you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you said the FDA is asking uh, through the guidance for companies to consider the patient perspective. Is that the word they're using, consider, or is there a formal process in place where they need to, you know, it's, it's almost like a requirement, they need to ascertain you know, or speak with patients and, and gain their insights into their uh, willingness to accept risk? It's a great question, Sean. To be honest, I don't have that particular page of the guidance open in front of me, um, so I can't tell you uh, exactly what their wording is. I, I can say that, um, that they are uh, uh, encouraging companies to, to do this and they do mention, and this I, I do remember from the guidance, they say if it's available. Uh, and so okay. that kind of begs the question, you know, well, how do you get this information? So uh, I think it's wise advice. I think this is something that, um, you know, I usually advise to companies anyway, uh, but it's something that we should take into account. Right. So it sounds like it's just like just it's it's more it does sound like it is more of a suggestion to to reach out, speak with patients to get their insights, just like they would uh, completely separately. And this is this is more of a requirement, but kind of the same uh, uh, kind of the same thinking, human factors uh, and usability studies. You go, you speak with physicians, you have them use it, you get their insights. This, you're speaking to the patients, you're getting their insights. Same idea. I know there's a difference. Human factors is a, is a, is a different aspect, but kind of the same thinking. Well, actually, I think, uh, uh, Sean, your metaphor is spot on 100% correct. I do remember that that particular section of the guidance is pretty light. They don't really go into it in any detail. It's sort of, uh, you know, it's just mentioned almost in passing. But 
It's interesting, Sean, you know, you characterize this as FDA's suggestion. Well, let me also remind the audience that what we're talking about here is guidance. Guidance is not inherently binding. So everything that we're talking about here is FDA's suggestion. Right. And uh, I just happened to have a conversation with one of my customers just yesterday, Sean, where this kind of came up. You know, they say, well, what if FDA, after a pre-sub, they say that we should do this or we should do that? Well, FDA will never tell you what to do, and it's quite frankly, it's not their job to tell you what to do. FDA will always say, well, we suggest that you do this or consider doing that. And, Sean, that's just nothing more than code speak. That's a very, very... Mm, polite way of FDA saying, we expect that you're going to do this unless, and this is the important part, Sean, unless you come back and convince us otherwise. Right. So, and it's that last part because FDA, and I want to be very clear about this, FDA cannot tell a company what to do. They can ask you, you know, they can make suggestions, but at the end of the day, it's ultimately the company's decision as to whether they do it or not. But, you know, one thing I've learned about being married, you know, Sean, is you have to pick your battles. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, anyway. absolutely. Um, and then one other, one other uh, clarification on, on something I, I believe you were, were talking about with regard to the, the post-market uh, studies and, and the industry's uh, uh, less than stellar track record where the, the FDA has the right or has the ability to pull the uh, PMA, meaning, and, and this is where I'm, I'm asking for the clarification, meaning that basically they're pulling the product off the market if you do not uh, continue with uh, pre, uh, post-market studies as, as was uh, agreed upon in the uh, regulatory process. Uh, yes, Sean, regrettably, and I, I take no pleasure in saying this about our industry, but regrettably you are correct. In the past, now I know things are starting to change a little bit, but in the past, many medical device companies, and to be fair, this is not a device-centric uh, uh, issue. Drug companies are perhaps even worse for doing this, and that is they will agree as part of the, um, you know, the approval process to keep an eye on the product uh, after it's on the market, what we call post-market surveillance or a post-approval study or phase four. I mean, it goes by a litany of different names. Uh, but unfortunately, some companies out there have not done that. When you look at the statistics across the board, they're not really great. And this is why um, in the EU, for example, that post-market surveillance requirements have gotten really beefed up. Um, and they're starting to do similar things now in the U.S. because, unfortunately, you know, we don't always do what we should do or what we say we're going to do. It's unfortunately it's a reality of our industry. Right, right. Well, maybe that's we'll... a topic we can dig into in more detail in the future. <laughs> Absolutely, always, always looking for new topics. So, all right. Well, uh, everyone else, thank you for uh, taking the time to tune in and listen to this episode of, of Mike on MedTech. Hopefully you got something out of it. I know I did. And as always, I'd like to thank uh, Mike Drews for joining us and, and uh, instructing us on the, the latest in regulatory updates and, and uh, new happenings. Uh, so until next time, this has been Sean Fenske for MPO saying thanks for listening.